I, I went through this in some detail. I think that ultimately we could have two or three uh, podcasts on this subject. You know, oh, yeah. Today we'll talk about steam and just the generalities. And then, we, you know, I have some questions on boiler types. And then, you know, you talk about steam conservation and production on the production side. Um, and then we go on another podcast on steam traps. I think there's just so much that we can expand on here. No pun intended. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferrier, and here with me today is Jim DePasquale, Mark Sankey, and special guest Chase Bean. In today's podcast, we will be discussing steam. Anybody making it anymore? You bet. And I think this is going to be a really interesting podcast because... There's a lot involved with steam, and uh, if you know, if I keep the audio in of Mark earlier, there, this could be a, a three-hour podcast and a lot of different aspects to talk about. But I think in today's episode, we're just going to talk about um, general steam in general in use, and uh, you know um, how it gets used, a little bit about how it gets made, and some conservation things you can do with it. But before we dive into that. I will let Chase give a brief introduction on himself and his background and the company he is with. So Chase, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Clayton. I, uh, my name is Chase Bean. I'm the Director of Engineering with Steam Management. I have about 15 years experience designing fluid systems and, and steam systems. And what we do at Steam Management is we focus on improving efficiency of steam systems. So we go in and evaluate different clients' steam systems and help them find ways they can save energy, uh, among other things. So we generally will start with clients and we'll do a system assessment and we'll help us identify energy conservation measures that we can then implement and uh, and partner with the client and, and get those installed. So if any anyone there is interested in, in that kind of service or improving your steam system, you can email me at cbean at steammgt.com. Check check out our website at steammgt.com. Yeah, and I'll put your website um, link in in the podcast description as well for anybody tuning in just to be able to find it and click on it. And uh, thank you very much for your introduction, Chase. We're excited to have you today. I think, like I said, this is there's a lot involved in this discussion. And I guess to get started, a good beginning for this podcast is how is steam generally used? I I know maybe some of our listeners know a whole lot about steam and some of them maybe know nothing about steam. So I I have a list, electricity generation, mechanical equipment operation, heating, food processing, medical, uh, anything else you guys have to add to that list or want to expand on? Yeah, I would say electricity generation is is a big, um, uh, is a big use of steam nowadays. You have power plants using natural gas or coal or biomass, and then and then utilizing the steam in uh, a uh, steam turbine to generate power. Nuclear also uses steam to generate power. And then you have new plants today that they call them um, cogen or CHP plants, where you're using some of the steam for power, and then kind of the leftover steam for process heating or or building heat or whatever whatever else you need it for but yeah you kind of hit the nail on the head there's a lot of manufacturing any any process in manufacturing that needs heat it's a it's a great medium for heating and uh you know conveying energy 
well, just carries so much energy, right? I mean, <laughs> you look at the steam tables and it makes sense why steam is used the way it is. And I don't know if there's anything else that can really replace that for how energy dense it is. Well, and I, I, I agree. It's time for me though to jump in with the Wayback Machine. <laughs> I think there is a, a general, if you look at you know uh, the media, et cetera, there's a general fear almost of steam systems. And go back to the dawn of the industrial age, the, the first automobiles were steam powered. The first tractors were steam powered. Mechanization in general, manufacturing mechanization was jack shafts across the roof of the building that were powered by a steam engine that was driven you know, by steam produced in sight. And as farmers and hot rodders are prone to do, they would try and extract more horsepower from their tractors by oh, a little piece of wire on the safety valve. Look at this thing go. And then whammo, the farmer blows up in the field. And and those kinds of things happened. There were many industrial and agricultural steam accident, accidents, fatalities. And I think there's still some of that that carried over. You know, my very first house had a one-pipe steam system in it. My neighbors thought I was crazy because, you know, you got to get rid of that steam system. It's a dangerous in your house. It's just not factually accurate now. I mean, obviously, you can still you know play stupid games win stupid prizes but the reality is steam systems are pretty safe yeah i would agree and, and i guess some more history there there was a uh, a shoe factory exploded in the early 1900s it was in uh massachusetts i think asme uh, that's a, a american society of mechanical engineers was formed to help resolve or, or mitigate some of the boiler explosions that were happening in the late 1800s but they didn't really take it that seriously i guess i mean they did but i guess the funding wasn't there or whatever and there were still thousands of explosions after they were formed just in like a 10-year period or something but in in eight in 1905 i, I guess the shoe factory exploded in brockton massachusetts and a bunch of people were killed the boiler knocked over a water tower on it. It shot up through the roof. The explosion shot up through the roof, knocked over a water tower. Water tower fell, collapsed the building. The coal that spread everywhere started fires and and lit like broken gas lines that had just been you know broken. And it was just a major um, major catastrophe. After that, and and there was another shoe factory exploded just like within the same year. I think they kind of ramped up the funding for ASME and they um they formed the boiler and pressure vessel codes and created those and that's still to this day what we use for guidelines for safety and, and boiler design and um I spent a lot of time in those codes so yeah but in today's age uh if people are following the codes like you said if they're not doing anything stupid or intentional to kind of bypass the safety requirements I would say boilers are pretty safe agreed and don't don't forget steam locomotives how much they contributed to, you know, tra transportation of huge amounts of uh, material, uh, you know, for the duration of their existence all the way up through World War II. Yeah, definitely. I mean, steam, when they when they came out with the locomotive and just really started harnessing steam more efficiently, I mean, that's what enabled societies to build factories. Like, like before that, all factories basically were either powered by windmills or they had to be next to fast moving water right to get some sort of power from 
right. from the river or whatever. Exactly. And when they yeah, when they started making effective steam engines and all, it really um advanced like the industrial revolution, I think. Well, and before that everything was primarily located on the coast because it had to be. There was no yeah. efficient, you know, long long distance transportation available. So anyway, a lot of great history. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. It started off as more of a um, primary means for manufacturing, you know, to have mechanical movement. And then when did it turn into we can make energy out of this, I guess that was followed after, obviously. Yeah, I don't know. when. I don't know when the first steam uh, steam turbine generation happened. Uh, I imagine in like early 1900s or something, but not far after, I guess. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Any of our listeners know, let us know. <laughs> So, um, and maybe we kind of already, by by nature of our previous conversation here, covered it, but types of facilities using steam, you know, this is a, a shorter list for me, but a lot of places that would be connected to district heat, right? And that could be multiple different types of facilities. Colleges and institutions use that a lot. And I think that's where Chase, like you mentioned, the CHP falls into yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, and then manufacturing, which we just covered a lot of pulp, paper, chemical, and food and beverage. Anybody want to expand on that or anything to add to that? I think, Clayton, I've had a couple um, high-rise buildings, you know, steams all over New York City and a lot yes, of- Yes, yes, you're right, yeah. Bigger yeah. yeah, they take advantage of, uh, you know, you don't get the elevation head mm-hmm. in a high-rise building from the water column and for other reasons, but it's very, very common still in uh, New York and other high rise or other high density cities. And I see a lot in healthcare too. Um, a lot of hospitals are using it for, uh, you know, heat distribution as well as their sterilizers and other medical equipment. Yeah. They use it in the labs and um, for curing certain things. And uh, yeah. Humidifiers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of cleaning, cleaning, sterilization and humidification. The operating rooms yeah. in the whole the whole hospital. So those are the two that jumped out at me. Hospitals use it a lot for uh, just straight like water heating also because they yep. already have the steam system. So they'll have like steam injected or, or steam uh, powered water heaters. Yep. Um, and also homes. Um, some of the older homes still have steam and uh, especially kind of like uh, nicer estates, older, like nice estates will still have like kind of a, a steam system throughout the estate. But yeah, as far as manufacturing, you hit the, hit the nail on the head, the chemical pulp and paper, food and bath. And then uh, another one, another big one is textiles. They use a lot of steam. Huh? So, you know, it for all the uses that it has, and I think this was a, a big reason we really wanted to do the podcast too, is in today's world, energy is, discussed a lot right in energy conservation and and green and we don't need to dive into the whole green part of it in this discussion but like i don't hear a lot about steam in the mainstream media is is there a reason for that i mean is that just the don't uh you don't talk about it it's just used and it is what it is and there's not much to expand on it i mean it it seems like it's such a primary driver um, for energy yeah it is i think uh, so we have a lot of clients like asking us about putting in electric boilers and things and um, which the electric boilers are great. They have a place and they have uh, advantages over gas boilers, but they're very expensive and they're expensive to operate. 
And usually the cost assessment, like if we run a cost assessment, it's just not even close to using natural gas. And I, so to answer your question, I think that's part of it. I think that there just isn't that, uh, you know, lower carbon footprint option for boilers yet that really makes sense right. for most people. Yep. Um, I th- I find the whole like green hydrogen thing to be interesting because that would be an easy uh, way to to upgrade a boiler to make it less, uh, you know, less carbon intensive. But uh, yeah, I think that if electricity, if the if the relationship between electricity and natural gas changes, then maybe that conversation changes. If, uh, you know, if electric costs go down compared to fuel costs, I think green hydrogen is a, a good opportunity to uh, generate heat in boilers. And then I think another thing people really don't talk about is um, there are a lot of small modular reactors, like nuclear reactors. They call them SMR, small modular reactor. But they there's a lot of them in development right now, and they're going to be coming out in the next few years. And these are like just you know uh, reasonably sized nuclear plants, basically that will start being installed and in, and in just all over the place. Um, that, that's kind of the, the the intent, I guess, and those could generate steam. So um, I don't steam as a medium is going anywhere. I just don't. I think for most people, you know, that the the regular gas fired boiler is kind of the what they're. It's kind of their only option. As soon as you said small nuclear reactor coming out, I immediately had to Google it. But those are still, according to Wikipedia, output less than three hundred megs. They're still pretty large. I mean, what's the low side of that scale for a SMR? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I I know I don't know what size all the first round will come out at. Um, but uh, yeah, there. You know, I mean, maybe so that's should, only for a huge refinery or something like that. Oh, that I, I was going to get on the, the skid steer and start leveling a place in the back <laughs> for one. Well, I know this well, falls. Mark, Mark, now you're getting into. We're on our last podcast. I know. I, know. I think I mentioned yeah. this in my my utopic vision. <laughs> That's yep. right. I want I want my own little nano reactor at my own my own house or neighborhood. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So steam's gonna fall into that too. That's perfect. How these two episodes are gonna knit together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll I'll jump in real quick uh, with the whole steam disappearing. You, you know, the biggest reason I see for it. Well, I guess in building heating. We've seen a lot of steam, low pressure steam systems replaced with just hydronic heat. And what I believe is driving that is the argument would be there's uh, it's simpler to operate and control and a lot of times cheaper to get higher efficiencies for your condensing boilers if the mm-hmm. system's designed properly. I think that was pushing a lot of that because in your more built up central steam plant, you still could get extremely good efficiencies but in some of the smaller you know heating applications it's tough to beat some of these condensing boiler setups so i think that's why you're seeing a lot of steam being removed just from comfort cooling or comfort um heating you know we still see it it's still very common in our list we mentioned earlier you know industry healthcare right whenever you have a need for you know the steam the higher steam pressures and temperatures and the other benefits of steam when it just comes to smaller residential or commercial heating systems seeing a lot of that just you have an older 
low pressure steam system, a lot of people are just ripping it out and putting in hydronic. Does it does it happen at the point where that steam system is like just poorly maintained and degrading to a point of when we're not going to fix it, we're just going to you know replace it, or is this happening to fully functional steam plants that are operating at whatever they could, the best they could do? You know, I mean, yeah, I've never seen it done to a, a well functioning system. Yeah, so that's what happens. They'd say it's ah. always you know it's you know it's the steam traps are leaking. The, yep. There's yep. Everything's corroded. The system's 40, 50 years old. And now it's yep. time to do a major, yeah, you know, capital improvement. And at that time, a lot of times, depending yes. on the building, they'll just put the conventional hydronic system. Um, at least my experience. Yeah, yeah I, I think agree. those, uh, they, I mean, those heat pump systems are great. And um, I don't think they're usually, like to your point, they're not usually replacing a uh maintained and sprawling steam system because it's just not uh, economically right justifiable but, you know what's interesting about those is they'll say like oh 100 efficient um so they mean is like for every kilowatt of energy you put in you get that many kilowatt therms uh or thermal kilowatts out heat you know but then still electricity is like four times as much as so if you run a, a gas boiler against an electric boiler, the cost is like four times as much. And electric boilers are also 100% efficient. So, I, I mean, I guess you get three times as much heat out of a heat pump. I don't know. I don't have to run those numbers. But anyway, if you're still four times the cost for the electricity and you, you get three times as much um, heat out per amount of uh you know what I mean? Amount of electricity yeah. than you're actually you're not getting anywhere. Twenty five percent better for the for the boiler. Yeah, yeah. It still costs so, you more. You must have been listening to our earlier right. podcast. Yeah, we have a a perfect example of that. <laughs> Mark outlines it. Well, if I have a ninety six percent efficient boiler and gas costs this much, or a you know heat pump, and it's running at a COP of three, it doesn't make sense. You might as well just run your furnace or your boiler. So right, right. Yeah. Now I have to check that out. I did listen to a couple episodes, but I, I didn't catch that one. Well, and then um, just to keep the conversation rolling, you know, I found it interesting. Again, I, I my background in Steam is very small, but I was doing some research for this podcast. And at, right from energy.gov, and again, this just kind of surprised me for the the discussions that are being had today with heating and cooling energy. Energy.gov, steam has many performance advantages that make it an indispensable means of delivering energy. These advantages include low toxicity, ease of transportability, high efficiency, high heat capacity, and low cost with respect to other alternatives. Steam holds a significant amount of energy on a unit mass basis between 1000 and 1250 BTUs per pound that can be extracted as mechanical work through a turbine or as heat for process use. Since most of the heat content of steam is stored as latent heat, large quantities of heat can be transferred efficiently at a constant temperature, which is a useful attribute in many process heating applications, which is all true, which we talked about. I just, I don't know. I didn't expect to find that on, on energy.gov. I was impressed. Yeah, they have a, they have a lot of good resources on there. Um, you're also able to, um, well, we, we referenced the, the site a lot. Yeah. Um, but, but I agree that it's just as a medium. I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah. No. The the whole miraculous phase change yep. is what makes steam just such a yep. a huge benefit 
So it's self-transporting. Basically, once you pressurize it, you know, steam pressure and differential temperature creates a, a differential pressure. And we have steam flow, like Jim said, up the highest high rise. And then the same thing, you can extract the mechanical mechanical work for it. And, and even, you know, Jimmy, in your backyard, there's a high temperature hot water system, distributed high temperature hot water system where they're making, uh, last I knew, 400 degree hot water, mm-hmm. doing phase change at the end of line. Um, I mean, all that makes sense. But in my mind, if you're if you plan to transport 400 degree anything, it should just be steam. You might as well just yeah call it what you need to make what you need to make yeah versus all you know based on the volume change of expanding 400 degree water to steam i look at that as inherently more risky than you know 150 psi uh steam yeah and i so i guess to that point too like you do have when you're pumping it it takes way more pumping energy to pump water throughout a facility than steam you have to pump the steam up to pressure with the feed water pumps to the boiler um, but then once you get in the boiler and you're up to pressure the steam kind of carries itself and then you can also control all the different users with just steam traps you know in, in certain cases like you don't always need control valves like the steam traps provide kind of a pressure uh balance between the supply and the return system so um it's just it's it seems complicated but it's uh it's just inherently kind of works and it's uh yeah i i I love it (laughs) well and and in my first house i had never seen a one pipe steam system before how does that work well when you look at it it's all pitched like a drain waste vent pipe oh so it all just goes back there's condensate running back at the same time steam's going Going up the pipe it's just pretty it's amazing i mean steam all by itself is pretty amazing stuff I was never against Steam, but I'm I'm becoming a big fan of it now. That's it's awesome. it's one of my favorite systems to work yeah. on. It really is. <laughs> yeah, same thing. <laughs> Can it be any simpler, really? Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it. No fancy controls, no nothing. It just let yep. it go, do its thing. So this conversation has kind of evolved in the weeks that we've been discussing it, but a, a big part of it in its initial stages was district heat. And, you know, the importance of steam and uses with district heat and how you cannot or not a good way to supplement that or replace it. Is is that a discussion we want to have in this episode as well or no? Maybe we already covered it. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, one thing I will mention about district heat. And uh, so, like, if, you, if you're a building and you're buying district heat, um, there's not really any way to, like, supplement it with your own boiler or or kind of. You know, it's not the same as buying power, right? If you put some solar panels on the roof, buy a little less power because the the system is a closed loop system. So if you were to inject steam in the system, then how do you then get the condensate back to your system? You know, so that's not really an option. But um, a lot of these district heating plants, and this is not really um, reducing carbon footprint, but just for the users themselves, a lot of these district heat or district steam providers, they don't have a penalty for the temperature of the condensate back. So what we'll do with a lot of clients is we'll go in and uh, recover heat from that condensate before it goes back to the other plant. So they they just want the con- they just want to make sure the condensate gets back. Mm-hmm. But whether you pump it back at 170 degrees or 
100 degrees, they don't care. So if we find a client that that doesn't have that temperature penalty and they have content going back pretty hot, you know, we can do some heat recovery projects there. And district steam is so expensive. Any amount of heat that you recover from that condensate is less steam that you have to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and district heat is usually pretty expensive. So it's usually a pretty good payback. Chase, a lot of district heat heat systems distribute at higher pressure and reduce at the local consumer site as well. Have you ever done any um, nano or micro turbine uh, replacement of PRVs to generate electricity in lieu of a, a PRV? Hmm, interesting. Is this to drop the pressure down instead of a PRV? Yeah. Um, I haven't been. I haven't been in any, involved in any projects like that. I've. Uh, I'm definitely familiar with it, but I. We've been involved in a couple, so we don't need to talk about it right now. We've we've done it, but they are pretty good projects. A lot of the district heat systems that I'm seeing distribute, you know, high pressures and means of distribution, and then they'll put in heat exchangers and just heat up hot water and have a conventional hydronic loop in the building. Oh, that makes I've, sense too. I I've guess. probably yeah. seen that more. I've seen it both ways where they reduce pressure and distribute low pressure steam. But I mean, I'd, it's probably more common now for me to see um, hydronic systems or like I was saying earlier, they're, they're trying to convert to hydronic um, depending on the building. Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, like universities that will have um, where they used to have a steam distribution system and then instead they're just converting to hot water um, kind of closer to it. Yeah, they're still using this steam. High pressure steam is the district energy you know, means yeah. of thermal transport. Then they get to the building and where they be PRVs, they put in steam condensers, heat exchangers, have a conventional yeah. hydronic system in the building. What stops somebody from just putting a condensing boiler in in place of that then? Well, then you change your heat source from the district steam to mm-hmm. a, a natural gas source you know, at the building. So it just mm-hmm. depends on the economics of the district energy um, yeah. tariff or whatever that structure is. Yep. The availability of natural gas at your site. Then there's also maintenance and operations, exactly. personnel requirements, all those things that go into it. Yep. And you know, especially if you're doing leased office space and those kinds of things, they do not want that additional uh, cost. Overhead too, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Huh. So if somebody connected to a steam system can say they're green then because they're not uh, producing any carbon emissions at their site, right? You had to go there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking outside the box. I don't know. Um, keeping the conversation flowing. So again, we kind of already covered this in in the discussion, but energy efficiency of steam and and Jim mentioned, you know, the condensing boilers in replace of steam systems, but the unit of energy per pound in transmission and Mark, this is, this is your comment, right? Is the driver for how you kind of can't replace steam with, with that in it, right? I don't know if I'll, I'll let you expand on that since it's your comment. You can't replace steam. Sometimes it's because of the BTU content specifically. Other times it's because of the work content specifically. Right. Um, you know, you may not just be using steam as a heat source. You may be using it as a prime mover either for a turbine or for, mm-hmm. you know, something else. But, yeah, you can't move as many BTUs an hour through a pipe 
um, carrying hot water just because you're not taking advantage of the change of the phase change of Delta H. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as far as like from a, from a manufa- manufacturing perspective, I mean, what if you need, what if you have a user that needs 500 degree heat? How do you, you, you can't do that with hot water. So, it, you you know, it can replace for HVAC purposes, it can replace steam, but uh, in manufacturing, there's the only other option is like thermal oils and uh, which I actually used to design thermal fluid systems uh, for a time. And um, they have a place as well, but they're dirtier and they don't actually get hot without getting really expensive. They're not as efficient. And uh, yeah, I mean, think about what, if you're in a, a food and bev manufacturer, what are you going to get that's cleaner than than water going through your product? Yeah. I mean, thermal oils have their place, but, you know, high temperature heat recovery, and we've done a bunch of it, You the cost for pumping and piping and all of that go up exponentially. It's not like designing a standard, you know, energy system where, oh, I can just use, I mean, the, the cost differential between standard water pumps and thermal oil temperature is just enormous i think a a a big when we talk about the efficiency of steam the big thing is the the size and type of building again if we go back to like a single family residence with a low pressure steam system you're likely running somewhere around 80 percent you know versus if you design a condensing boiler system properly with low temperature water you could drive that well into the 90s um on, on the bigger you know central systems industrial there's a lot of opportunity to capture that efficiency over that 80%. You know, there's a lot of flash steam recovery you could do on high pressure steam systems. There's stack economizers. You know, you're not going to find that in a single family residence um, to get you over that 80%. But when you get into the bigger industrial systems, all of a sudden there's a lot of uh, options become feasible and there's a lot more you can do to recover a lot of that heat. That's a yeah. great point, Jim. And actually, uh, we, we worked with a central utility that injected water into the stack after the economizer, flashed it to vapor, and then condensed it uh, at the point of where it left the building, condensed it uh, into a drip pan and preheated makeup water and essentially made their large scale, you know, uh, 400 pound steam system into a condensing boiler system. Huh. Yep. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been on local business parks here that in the Rochester area that will start at, you know, 600 PSI steam spinning uh, utility grade turbines for generation to the grid. And then on its way down 600 PSI, it'll hit chillers, compressors, um, high pressure heating systems at 100 to 200 PSI and they'll take it all the way down to condensing turbines um, yep. to where they're drawing a vacuum and they're pulling every single BTU out of that steam before they send it back. And those, those are some very, very interesting systems, Just some incredible engineering. Most yeah. of it, most of it done decades, <laughs> if not a century ago, but. So have, have you guys ever seen a Dunham Bush Verivac system? I have not. Okay, so we won't talk about it. It's I feel really old. Okay. 
<laughs> Next question. <laughs> so yeah, we, we tell our listeners if they don't know, look it up then. All righty. Um, do we want to talk about boilers a little bit? And, you know, how steam is made, different types of boilers and some of the technological changes in it, or if any. Yeah, we could uh, we could touch on it. I would say there, there's two main types of boilers. There's fire tube boilers and water tube boilers. Mm-hmm. Um, most of your commercial, you know, hospitals and, and buildings and colleges, they're usually going to have fire tube boilers because they're... Uh, more that you can get more energy out of them for the size um basically the difference between a fire tube and a water tube boiler should back up in a fire tube boiler you have boiler tubes and the flue gases from the burner travel inside the boiler tubes and the water sits on the outside like in a big tank yep uh, the boiler itself is a big tank on a water tube boiler um you have a bunch of boiler tubes and the flue gas passes on the outside of those boiler tubes so you know, you know, you'll have your furnace section and then you'll have other subsequent sections where flue gas uh, passes outside of the boiler tubes and heats up the water. And then you'll have these two drums. You'll have a mud drum and a steam drum and uh, the water just circulates between them and, and uh, captures as much heat as possible. But um, so water tube boilers are generally for higher pressure applications. You can get because the steam is on the inside of the tubes, you can crank that pressure up higher. And so when you start getting into power generation and uh, manufacturing boilers and, and all, um, then you start seeing more uh, water tube boilers. But uh, but yeah, in, in commercial applications, it's usually a fire tube boiler. If you're only going up to 100 pounds or something, uh, you're, you're probably going to be a fire tube boiler. Beyond that, I mean, there's a, for the, especially for the water tube boilers, different types. You have your like O type or your O frame and your D frame. And, so there's all different configurations and then coal boilers and biomass boilers are, you know, these 10 story Sterling style boilers where the water tube go all the way up the whole structure. And, you know, there's all different kinds of boilers. And there's actually, I said, there's fire tube and water tube. There's some companies making boilers that are considered hybrid boilers where maybe the furnace section is a water tube, but then it, then the flue gas travels into another section where it's going inside the tubes. And then, um, that section fire tube, so they call that hybrid. But yeah, that's kind of a high level overview. There's a lot to it. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different designs. Um, you get a lot of the same ones over and over, especially right. Like I said, if you're going to a college, you're going to see a lot of the same fire tube boilers. But yep. Well, and, and then uh, on each in each boiler type or in all boiler types, then you have different types of burner. Whether you go to, uh, you know regular gas fire a stoker a fluidized bed you know whether we have under fire and over fire i mean so many variations mutations design options there's just a you know a way to um, really tailor the design and construction of the boiler to the specific application especially paper or biomass yeah they have uh, the the reboilers are burning uh liquor from the pulping process um we do some work with those people there's all kinds of fuels i mean you have gas coal biomass um you can even burn like uh old used tires you know anything that burns basically that have a consistent full quality and consistent fuel supply there's people out there making steam with it 
Yeah, we did a job a few years ago for a big pulp paper application, and they just had acres and acres. And you're talking about some big all-wheel drive articulated front end loads. All they did all day was uh, move around first uh, dry, meaning spread it out so the sunlight dries it, uh, scrag wood. So that was basically leftover wood from the paper mill that had bark and, you know, trash and limbs and all that stuff and then basically put it into a grinder and then it went to the boiler that was the feedstock so field the table they used every part of the tree let me tell you every part yeah we have that i've designed a couple of uh biomass fired power plants we did one at savannah river site like the i forget the statistics it was like the largest biomass land southeast or something like that but it's it's very interesting and the whole the system from them dropping the lugs off and it getting chipped in the uh in the hammer system and then all that wood getting conveyed and then do you have any metal in the wood so they have actually like magnets over the conveyor belts that pull the metal out of, of the chips and uh yeah and then the boilers themselves are amazing too like so it's uh it's very interesting and is that like you say biomass they they did that because it's a byproduct of a process or they just it's more efficient or cost effective to use it even though you have to process it so much to generate steam um with. yeah there's usually like a local source like we did one for a a sugarcane factory or a sugarcane uh, farm or, or plantation mm-hmm. or whatever um and they have that that came like the the waste product there so it's yeah. usually because they have the waste like in the case yeah. of pulp and paper they have that yep all that wood that's just a byproduct and at the same riverside i believe they were buying the the wood but they had a low supply that was cheap so yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what drives it obviously yeah yeah, yeah it's all economics you know yep that's um, what it is huh yeah very interesting, you know, and this this falls so well into our conversation, the the podcast series, um, our last episode about little microgrids and and nuclear, and then we did uh, conservation and utilizing, you know, as much as much as possible, right, to conserve and reuse, and steam falls into this. It's it's really interesting. I think this is a great podcast episode. Um, our steam system still like being designed and installed today or is this kind of like a legacy technology that just keeps maybe growing or expanding for with facilities that already have it in place i mean i i don't know i guess that, yeah that's a question for you guys i just finished yeah. designing designing one really yeah for just a small little food processing operation yeah so i guess a hospital is food processing any type of manufacturing plants that go in or, or get installed that steam still the primary driver right i think it has to be yeah there's no substitutes mm-hmm. yep right yeah they're de- in manufacturing definitely uh people are putting in new systems that involved in in uh several of those projects and um yeah maybe maybe if you're talking about uh, buildings it's not much um yeah like heating, right or now, heating. But, yeah 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 hmm. when high when hydrogen becomes a big thing if that you know really gets legs um which is an interesting topic because it's like you know it's a fuel it's a gas fuel like they can basically replace natural gas 
transmitted. It's kind of like the answer, not the only answer, that's a big statement, but it's kind of one of the answers to uh, all these renewable uh, generation sources, like how do you store the energy, right? Like the whole question is the storage of the energy. And this is one of those ways you can store the energy in, you know, chemical energy form. And um, anyway, but then and once that's like a viable option, I mean, that goes right in the boilers and burns and you're using the same kind of uh, um, just with a new gas fuel that's not um, carbon intensive. So. I think it all comes down to Chase, though the economics of production of hydrogen as a as yeah. a fuel source, right? Right now it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. and it's just like anything else. You know, we've had steam powered cars, we've had battery powered cars back in the 1900s. As soon as that fuel source becomes economically viable, you know, in a in a capital capitalist market, there will be a way to take advantage of that. So yeah. right now it's all eyes on how we make nitrogen less expensive to produce, store, transport, and distribute at point of consumption. So I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah, and and there's a lot of talk about we we touched on it earlier, but like the small modular reactors, like what do you do? Um, you want like a base load on those things. You don't want to waste um, the fuel. And so, you know, what do you do with that extra capacity? Um, and maybe that's maybe that's one of the things you do in that. So, you know, eventually, who knows where we'll be at um, well, energy-wise? It's always always changing. I can't wait. My 1852 farmhouse that we live in has seven fireplaces in it. Then it was converted to a coal boiler, then a um, oil boiler. For 15 years, we had a biomass wood boiler outside. Now it's geothermal. I can't wait to have SMR outside. You got a museum <laughs> over there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. So, Chase, I know you, you touched on it before. Electric boilers, it all comes down to, to cost, right? Cost of electricity versus cost of gas. It, do you see much of a future for those in the steam discussion or pretty much no way just i think eventually um we also have so like if you're a big manufacturer and you decide that you're going to put in like a huge solar field or something um right. that's an opportunity to utilize that electricity that you're generating if you have significant uh, carbon tax or something like that um it starts being more competitive but it's uh we had a client, like I said, with with a significant carbon tax. And so I thought, okay, this is interesting. We might actually do uh, an, a replace with an electric boiler here. And um, it just still wasn't even close. And there, really? the carbon tax was where the carbon tax was so high that it was going to cost more than the fuel. And it's still, wow. the, the total cost was half the electric cost. When I made this outline, it was, you know, it was a little while back, but I did my, and I don't know what the cost is now. Again, this is a little, a little old, but I did my per million BTUs cost for energy when you do it with gas and then electricity. So with gas, and I did New York prices for whatever that's worth, uh, $16.05 per million BTUs with gas. And then with electricity, it's $70 per million BTUs. That's a huge cost difference. And that falls probably right into what you were saying chase right 
So uh, if you look at electric there and you have something that's 300% efficient, you know, you're still significantly you're still more expensive. Upside down. Yeah. yeah, you're still upside down. Huh. That's not even factoring in the demand charges I, when your, meg- your, your megawatt <laughs> boiler turns on. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> oh, yeah. my no, gosh. Utilities just scrambling to you know, ramp up their peaking plants just when you turn on your boiler. But, yeah, there's... Yeah. Electric boilers are going to be challenging. Um, mm-hmm. There's just a lot of, you know, yeah. you know in yeah. the future, definitely. But right now, I mean, the only push for it would be through regulation and incentive. Yeah, not um, not financial value. Yeah, yeah. You bring up you bring up a good point too. It's not like you just place the thing there and plug it in. I mean, you have right. to upgrade your whole electrical infrastructure, which is a big investment as well. So I'm not against them. As soon as they make sense, I'm fine. You know, I'll I'll put them in. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any problem with them, but it just, I I can't make them, uh, I can't justify them in the scenarios that I've looked at recently. Chase, I think, you know, that's always the quandary of the engineering community and us, especially all of us having experience in the industry. Our whole mission is 100% candor with the client to say, Here's your options. Here's the reality of what the economics are, the costs, and it's their choice as always. But I think right now the economics are so lopsided, at least in most um, areas geographically, that you know we'll go through the exercise, but it almost always lands on the side of um, you know some traditional uh, energy source. Yes, I agree. And I, honestly, that a big part of what we do is um, is just improving the efficiency of the system. That's really your big opportunity with your steam systems to reduce your carbon footprint. Is just to you know do the do the projects that reduce the energy use of the system, which we could spend a whole another podcast talking about. But well, I, I was going to suggest that we do that because I think there's so many options, you know, in terms of O2 trim recuperators, condensing economizers, um, you know, the boiler max studies that have been done in so many places and all the options that fall out of those. And I think, you know, there's a myriad of not even necessarily high cost, but very sound economic, uh, they have very sound economic indices for relatively simple retrofits that should be looked at uh, or, you know, just as a general course of doing business. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just to give an example, I mean, we, we partner with uh, energy service companies a lot and, uh, and be part of their project portfolio or whatever, but they, we had a, we had a, an ESCO that we were working with and they're proposing something for a manufacturer and they had, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 opportunities that they're listing out. And we had proposed four opportunities and every iteration of the uh, proposal, they left all four of our opportunities untouched because it had the best payback of anything right. because just, there's just so much energy wasted that you can recapture. And honestly, I think like to what we were talking about earlier, I think people are afraid of steam systems. So I think they get neglected longer than other systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just just don't want to mess. They don't want to be responsible for uh, some catastrophe or something. But it's really not. It's not that hard to uh, recapture some of that energy there. Well, I think my my plug at this time is for younger people, especially engineering students, 
two documents you need to know and love the uh, Mollier chart and the psychrometric chart. As soon as you really get to understand the uh, principles behind both of those, you're well on your way. And then even when you start to work in a steam plant, there are reasonable precautions, but there's a, an abundance of experience. Have your PPE, everything ready to go. And when you go in a steam plant, keep your eyes open. Ask lots of questions because they're just amazing, amazing structures and amazing mechanical systems. I think that's yeah. part of the that's challenge, though, like for today's young engineers is I, this stuff. And maybe I'm wrong, is not highlighted in the energy discussion. You know, yeah, it's not, and and there's a lot of uh, steam knowledge that's um, yeah entire, going away. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, think that somebody. I mean, I'm 39. I think somebody my age with like a lot of steam knowledge is kind of a rare thing, especially if you start going going younger. Than mm-hmm. me. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I would add to that um, if you really want to learn, or if you're going to spend time designing steam systems. The big codes there are like the ASME, uh, boiler and pressure vessel codes that we mentioned earlier. And then also like NFPA, if you like, as far as the gas, the right. gas trains and all, um, yep. NFPA 85 is uh, specific to boilers, but there's, there's some other ones as well that are, um, that are helpful. Um, but it's, it's a little intimidating to get in the codes when you first start. I, I mean, I remember feeling that way, way back in the day. Um, but they, it's actually laid out very clearly. And uh, and there's, I, I don't know, once you get used to the structure of it, it's very useful to go. Yeah, I think that's stuff. a good point. It's more the structure of the codes, probably, to get an understanding of how to follow it. And yep. Break it down. I agree. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah, and that's a big part of why I thought this episode is really interesting, especially being, you know, a younger engineer in the field is steam seldomly talked about in, in a education scenario. And then, you know, out of college in the industry, if, if you don't fall into steam specific, I mean, it's not, it's not highlighted in the media. To me, it's not, it's just not talked about much besides some experts like you guys on a podcast or, you know, out in the field, if it's a manufacturing or, a, you know, anything that has to do with steam. But, um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting, worthwhile discussion to have. So uh, we'll close out with a quick discussion of the Dunham Bush Variavac system. <laughs> so back in the day, so I'm talking the forties, fifties, uh, in a school district before there was before when they primarily heated with steam there was no mechanism to reset the steam temperature based on outside air like there is with hot water systems right so dunham bush developed a system that actually had a vacuum pump on the uh on the condensate side and control valves on the system that varied the vacuum on the system based inversely with outside air temperature to be able to produce steam at below atmospheric pressure to reduce the steam temperature and thereby do outdoor air reset of the steam temperature. And there were a lot of those systems installed and ultimately they ended up, you know, these were vacuum tube, not vacuum in the, in the steam pipe, 
vacuum tube systems originally, and then they went to transistor type, and then they you know went to microprocessor type. But the point is that uh, even back then there were technologies being evolved and developed to make steam viable, useful, more flexible, um, you know, for many, many applications. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I just think it's so interesting. You, you mentioned the cars. Did you see recently that I know had that accident uh, where the, he was working on his cars and it, uh, he had an explosion burn his face. Yep. Um, but that was, that was one of his steam cars. And so that got me looking into, uh, like there's videos on YouTube of him driving around in steam cars and stuff, and they're really cool. Oh, Stanley Steamer was the the big deal. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I think you got to have like two hundred thousand dollars to buy one, though. At least. At yeah. least. Yeah. yeah, they're but uh, they're really cool. I'll have to look into that now. Very He's just driving around LA in a steam <laughs> like in an old steam powered car, like it's kind of surreal. But. Yeah. How does it work? Like, what what makes the steam? It's like a, I mean, it's kind of like a like a locomotive or something, yeah. And yeah. then you have like a regulating, like a handle that kind of regulates the pressure and that regulates your speed. And uh, you'll have to check it out on YouTube. It's it's neat. But yeah, I guess he I'm was working with something uh, something that was some some kind of explosive chemical or cleaner or something, and he was right next to the <sighs> pilot light for the thing. So there was a, a little oh, pilot light. There. My. Yeah. Yeah, and it blew up in his face. But oh. yeah, anyway, I think he's okay now. Yeah, it sounds like it. I guess that we're at a good point. We can wrap up this episode. Chase, I really appreciate you being on. I think you added a whole lot of insight to the Steam podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I it did, yeah, it was great. And I think we're due for some more follow-up episodes, like Mark was mentioning. So for our listeners, keep an eye out for more Steam-related discussions. I think there's so much to be talked about, and... It needs to be in the podcast, certainly. So with that, thank you, Chase. Thank you, Mark. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And everybody has a great day.